This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome back our returning celebrity guest scorer, host of the Best Picture cast, and friend of the show, Kieran B. Hello, guys. Good to be back again. Number three. Number three for me here. Hey. Studio audience, get off my lawn. Yeah, they can be a little bit enthusiastic here at the outset, but, uh, you know, that's what happens with these live recordings, of course. I mean, you should maybe make the applause sign smaller. (laughs) So how have things been? Things have been great uh, over at Best Picture Cast. We capped up our season four and we did our our season four rankings, ranked all 15 of those movies. We did our our sub-50 uh, movie tournament. We had uh, we crowned Tommy Boy as the champion, and uh, I believe that episode will be releasing the same week as this episode, so it should be out already by the time you're hearing this. And we're all gearing up for spooky season. We got the horror uh, tournament coming up in October, and also debuting our season five with our first episode, All About Eve, coming out soon. So Ooh, good, good great stuff. Film. Yes, we've had a uh, sincere debate on this program, although not quite yet because we haven't covered that specific movie but there has been a back and forth eh, let's say rivalry i'm in the all about eve camp dana tends to be in the sunset boulevard camp but i think they're both excellent movies and that that's a hell of a heavyweight fight between the two if you really want to hear the great backstory of the film oscar wars the it was a book that was released last late last year tells there's an entire chapter about that year and tells all the inside poop about that film. The inside poop? Yeah, phenomenal best actress race, too. Hmm? Did you say the inside poop? Yep. <laughs> okay. Well, would you like me to give you the outside poop? Uh, usually the poop is outside <laughs> if it's going to be laying loose. It's got to start somewhere. A, a really good uh, actress race, too. And neither of the uh, leading ladies or any of the three leading ladies, I should say, from that from those movies won. It was Judy Holiday from Born Yesterday. So I've seen and I'm like, OK. Yeah, I, I watched that for this episode. I also watched Caged, which was the other one. Eleanor Parker was the fifth nominee in that. So I'm going to we're going to have a whole discussion on uh, on the, the best actress category for that one, too. So looks pretty good. I, I actually enjoyed Born Yesterday, too. William Holden in that one also. And uh, Caged is, is a prison movie which was not up for Best Picture, but up for Best Actress and and seems appropriate so, but a a really strong Best Actress category that year. Did you have to go like searching far to get access to either of those? I got born yesterday at our local library, which has like a huge stock section there. Uh, Caged, I just rented from Amazon Prime for three bucks or whatever it was. Yeah, because it's sometimes hard to find a lot of those, like especially the really old ones. And if they're not particularly popular, it can be sometimes impossible because of who has the rights and whether or not it'd even be available for rent, let alone on streaming. Yeah, it, I'm, I'm curious sometimes how people find all of those, but I thankfully have a uh, backdoor access to a lot of this stuff, and uh, I'm very thankful that I do. Yeah, that's great. And there's there's a bunch of there's a bunch of ones in like the s- nominees in the 70s and 80s that are really tricky to find too. 
like Harry and Tonto. You can't get you can't get Harry and Tonto right now. Is that is that true? I don't know, but my dad has had it sitting as a DVD from what was Netflix and is now DVD.com, and they're now like selling or basically telling you we have any of our DVDs. But he's had it sitting for like four years in the same spot on his coffee table, waiting to watch it so that he can finally learn why. Oh, I can't remember the name now. Art Carney. Art, Art Carney, Carney yeah. won his Oscar in 1974 over Al Pacino for The Godfather Part Two, And over Nicholson for, for Chinatown, too. Yes. Oh, that was a huge race because, I mean, it wasn't just those two. I'm trying to think what else would have I been. Think, uh, I think Hoffman for Lenny was the other one. Most people consider it kind of like a Lifetime Achievement Award after all of his work in television and theater. And for those of you who are interested, Art Carney was the original Felix Unger in the opening of Odd Couple, opposite Walter Matthau as Oscar Madison. And that actually is a movie we'll be discussing not too very far off, again with my mother, who at this point we just stopped counting how many times she's been on the show. (laughs) So Dustin Hoffman and Lenny and Albert Finney, uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Gotcha. Doing a really bad French accent. (laughs) On the other hand... You had three actors, all from The Godfather Part Two, with Michael Vigazzo, Lee Strasberg, and De Niro, who won, against Jeff Bridges and Fred Astaire. Yeah, John Cazale snubbed for that one, too. He doesn't get nominated for his portrayal of Fredo in, in Part Two, which is crazy to me. But I, I do like those three Godfather nominations. Well, let's get down to brass tacks. We should probably actually discuss the movie we're here to talk about. So tonight, for our 182nd episode, we discuss the race relations thriller Gran Torino from 2008, celebrating its 15th anniversary later this year, directed by Clint Eastwood, written by Dave Johansson and Nick Schenk, music by Kyle Eastwood and Michael Stevens, Kyle Eastwood being the director's son, who has apparently scored several of his movies. B. Vang as Tao Vang Lore, Ani Hur as Su Lore, Christopher Carley as Father Janovich, Dua Mua as Fong Spider, Sunny Vu as Smokey, Elvis Tao as Mung Gangbanger Number One. I mean, it <laughs> <laughs> just reminds me of Love Actually, where the girl comes home and she's excited to be in the school nativity play and she's the lobster. <laughs> And it's like the lobster number two. There, there had to be more than one lobster. But yeah, apparently uh, Mung Kingbanger number one did not need a character name. <laughs> I have uh, I have one credit to my name. I was in a in a um, I lent uh, I lent out our bar to so a, a, someone could film a student film. And I show up in the credits as Dick with hat. So <laughs> I'm a, a a bar patron who's uh, who's mouthing off to someone. So I'm Dick with hat. Uh, should have that embroidered on a shirt. <laughs> I should. I should. Or uh, on the back of a chair. So it looks like you're like the, the extra or something. <laughs> That's right. Hey, this is the Dick with the hat right here. Right. So back. Don't step up to my office. Brian Haley is Mitch Kowalski. Brian Howe as Steve Kowalski. And Geraldine Hughes as Karen Kowalski. I should ask, uh, Karen, how's my pronunciations on those? I, I think you nailed it, to be completely honest with you. I, I had no eyebrows raised over here. Okay. 
I know that you've had some trouble in the past and, and get made fun of, so I thought I'd at least give you the opportunity to turn the shoe on the other foot here. Nope, I've had more than enough trouble, and you just basically showed me up. So uh, you uh, did, did a, nice, a fine job there. I should take some notes. All right, well, thank you. It helps when we have a large Hmong community around here. Oh, okay, so you guys are close to home with that. That's yes. cool. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I grew up with quite a few of them. Recognition for this movie? Gran Torino was released on December 12th, 2008. It would go on to gross over $274 million at the worldwide box office between 2008 and 2009. It was the number 21 grossing film of 2009. Receiving mostly positive reviews among critics at the time, Gran Torino was recognized by the American Film Institute as one of the 10 best films of 2008. Clint Eastwood's performance also garnered recognition as he won an award for Best Actor from the National Board of Review. The film, however, was ignored by the Academy Motion Picture Arts and Sciences at the 81st Academy Awards when it was not nominated for a single Oscar which led to heated criticism from many who felt that the Academy had also deliberately snubbed Revolutionary Road and Changeling, which Eastwood also directed from the five major categories. The film has since drawn some backlash for its noted inclusion of Walt's racism and the stereotypical portrayal of the white savior trope. Grand Torino currently holds an 81% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 72 score on Metacritic, and a 3.8 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So before we jump into what would normally be our opening questions here, I'm going to borrow something from our friend's show here. And what are we drinking? Ah, nice. All right. Well, um, Dad, do you want to start? Okay. Well, I'm having Kirkland Small Batch Master Distillers. It's from uh, the Barton Distillery, which makes Evan Williams, among many of its other bourbons. It has, uh, it's 92 proof, so if I start to slur a bit by the end of the film, you'll know I'm on my third. All right, Karen, what are you drinking? Yeah, so on my first time on Gmote, I had, uh, I had like a couple light beers, and I saw Dana over there kind of crushing the brown stuff, and I felt like emasculated a little bit. I'm like, this is, I'm just drinking light beer. This guy's, this guy's means business here, so... Uh, I, I learned to switch over to the to the good stuff. So I have uh, with me here a Macallan Twelve, not quite Centauri time like uh, like our last episode on on Lost in Translation, but Macallan Twelve. I got this gifted to me by one of one of my players' families at the end of the summer season. So I figured, you know, this is one of my favorite pods to guest on. So I got to break out the good stuff for uh, for the G mode. Well, thank you for the compliment too. Oh, of course. So I have been waiting for whenever my first BPC guest appearance shall be to represent Wisconsin properly with Wisconsin's own, and you can only get it within the borders of the state, New Glarus's Spotted Cow. Wow. I love it. I love it. Cheers, gentlemen. Cheers. No one brought along the Pabst Blue Ribbon tonight, unfortunately. I don't mind Pabst Blue Ribbon, but it's not one that I often go to. People who started the New Glarus Brewery were... Spotted Cow is. He was the last brewmaster at Paps before it was sold off to Miller, and she was the marketing director. And they took the cash buyout, drove in a car west from Milwaukee until they landed in New Glarus and decided to open their brewery there. There's the connection. Look at that. Local historian. It's definitely one that people will ask people to send it to them or that if they come visit, they will take a case or two back with them. And it's even stamped 
by our, let's say, German family that it's better than some of the stuff that they have over there. So I, I will take it as a stamp of approval that it is one of the world's best beers, personally. Wow. Wow. Okay. I got to I gotta check this out. I went to visit my grandfather years ago before he passed, and uh, I had to drive through New Glarus to get there. And one day a month, they open up for direct sales from the brewery. The line was over two miles long, and it was 90% Illinois cars. Coming up to try and buy some while they could. Got I got to gotta get my hands on this somehow. Figure it out. We may have to send you some. Maybe it'll come with your hat. Too. <laughs> two two <laughs> episodes right. down the line or something. I like that. All right. So let's transition very poorly into, Dad, what is your relationship with this film? Well, this is a film that um, I actually, this is, now I'm going to admit this. I thought the first time I saw it was on VOD. Your mother corrected me and said, we did this on a date night. Yeah, I was going to say, this was a film that I think I watched on your personal recommendation, and it had been out on DVD by that point, and it was one where you thought it should have been us up for Best Picture over, I think, The Reader was also that year, and you thought that was a poor film. I did not care for The Reader. I thought Kate Winslet's performance was great, but I thought this was a better film because of its message. I mean, it's we'll get into the, what this movie is about, but I just thought it was kind of the summation of Eastwood's career. He's been dirty, hairy, and the man without a name. Everything was about violence and killing. And the ultimate sacrifice in this film is he gives himself up to be killed. Yeah, uh, I, I want to ask you this, sorry to interject. The cha- uh, or sorry, Changeling came out the first, the same year. Uh, he did two movies in one year. You made a bit of a face when uh, when Tom read that off. Are you not a changeling guy? No, it was Revolutionary Road, which okay. to me is the worst film I think I've ever seen. <laughs> I w- walked out of it. Wow. It, I have only walked out of one or two films in my entire life. That was one of them. You did not walk out of the theater because you didn't see it in the theater. You rented it on like VOD or... Uh, yes. rental or whatever when Blockbuster was still around. Walked out of his house. What went went to the back room, turned on music so I couldn't hear it anymore and read a book. I am also not a fan of that one. And I do like Sam Mendes quite a bit, but Revolutionary Road, I, I think the performances are, are overrated in that one. Outside of the one, the one who was nominated, the supporting actor, names escaping me. Oh, is that Michael Shannon? It is Michael yes. Shannon. Yeah, he, he was good in it. But I, I thought the two leads were, and I love the two leads. Uh, I thought they were a little overrated in that one. I like Michael Shannon. But anytime he shows up in a film, it has me concerned. Because he's only <laughs> in films where he's extremely odd. It's like menacing. he can't be anything like down the line. Personally, I enjoyed his turn as General Zod. But like, okay, that's probably the most normal performance outside of his small cameo in Groundhog Day. Everything else, he's just odd. You're not wrong. Soul Mania. <laughs> uh, so, Kieran, what's your relationship to this? I so I am a, a huge Clint Eastwood fan. He's actually uh, probably one of my favorite directors. In the last two years or so, I, I watched his entire directorial filmography in chronological order. So I, I got him straight through. This is a movie, Gran Torino, I saw on VOD when it came out, probably soon after it was in theaters, when there was kind of a, a whole, whole lot of buzz about it. 
And I think I probably saw it right around the same time I saw Million Dollar Baby, which is one of my personal favorites, and Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, another one of my personal favorites. So it really got me going on the on the Clint Eastwood momentum there with that, you know. And this was again around 2008 or 2009 when it came out. Uh, so it would be it would be many years later before I'd tackle his filmography, but it really was kind of uh, planted the seed for me becoming a Clint Eastwood fan and, and learning more about. Uh, his his time in westerns and and whatnot and and basically what all the things that Dana said led up to what this movie is about behind the scenes. I know this wasn't on like the initial syllabus, but it, it begs the question a little bit for me: Is he the best actor turned director? Because I think there's probably only one other major actor or let's say movie star turned director that I would probably even put in the category because. It's the only other one I think that has won a, a Oscar for directing. Oh, no, excuse me. I take that back because uh, Warren Beatty did it as well for Reds, if I could. But the year before was... And Costner, too. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, that, But that was like Costner kind of just parading around how big he was in Hollywood at the time. Not that he like did anything special with that movie. Yeah. Well, it also depends on what you call acting. Because you could use Otto Preminger. Because Otto Preminger did several films where he was an actor before he specifically went over to being a director. Okay. But I was thinking Redford would be the only other one I would probably put in the same category as Eastwood. Obviously, his filmography is not as deep, but he's got several Best Picture nominees. He's got a, a Best Picture award winner. He's got a Best Director to his credit. So I, I think he'd probably be in, in maybe a, a close second, but... It's probably Clint and then everybody else. It's, uh, it, a lot of it comes down to them not having the stick to with it. Like he, he, Clint kept churning them out and a lot of them try it and do it. Like you mentioned Warren Beatty and, you know, there was uh, I mean, Sean Penn directed Into the Wild. Clooney was directed at Good Night and Good Luck. So like a lot of them dabble with it, but don't really stick with it through it. And he did. Um, Sidney Pollock, maybe, because he was a stage actor and was in some things, and he then became more known as a director. So he, he would probably be a guy I would throw out. Well, I'm going to just so that we don't sound chauvinistic, Jodie Foster. Yeah, okay. One I also thought of, although I've said he is the zero point, the origin point of wins above replacement director, Ron Howard. Yes. Oh, good call. Good call. Yes, that's a, that's a total actor turned director. Because Ron Howard does not elevate a movie, but he does not, like, make a movie worse either. He will make the movie that is exactly on the page, and he'll do it decently enough. So if you have a really good script, it's going to be good. But if you have the abominable dreck that was Hillbilly Elegy, he will <laughs> he will make that piece of trash and still think it's somehow good. I was so concerned that that was going to be what Glenn Close won her Oscar for. Because <laughs> I'm like, of all the things she did, oh, that was just so bad. And she still got nominated. And I'm like, ah. Oh, boy. So what is the movie about? This might be a much more layered question this week. What was your relationship with it, Tom? So this was, it, it was before I started really trying to watch every Best Picture nominee so I think I've watched everyone going back to 2011, 2010, somewhere in that range. And I have most of them in for 2009. But this was also one of them where I was really starting to pay attention to it more. So this would have been my freshman year of college. 
And I do remember renting this at like the local blockbuster because Dana had recommended it and told me that this should have been up for best picture along with the dark Knight. And I, at the time I thought these were the two best movies of that year. I was not a big slumdog millionaire fan. I've kind of come around on it, but I'm still not high necessarily on it in the craze. That was that year for that particular film. It kind of just came out of nowhere and took over and became a, a sweetheart of sorts to the American public. But I still think that for the accomplishments that it bestowed, The Dark Knight would probably have to have been the best movie of 2008 for me. And then this one probably shortly thereafter. That being said, I still think, was this the same year as, I think Frost Nixon was a film I enjoyed. Yes. yes. Speaking of Ron Howard. Yeah. And I think there was at least one other one in that best picture race that I'm forgetting that I also enjoyed and thought it was actually a decent film, but it was kind of a controversial year because it was the last year with only five. Mm. So back to what the film is about. Some of this has to do with who you think the protagonist truly is. I think in a very narrow sense, it's Clint Eastwood because he's our main character. He's how we see the film for the most part. And in a way, I think this is similar to what Roger Ebert said in his review about a kind of redemption story for somebody who life has evolved past him, coming to terms with his life and his choices, and finally embracing kind of the change that has passed him by for years, no longer being just simply stuck in place, allowing himself a level of integration with his neighbors, with his neighborhood, with his surroundings, whereas he seems to be somebody who's been stuck in his ways quite literally for 50 years at that point. And then the redemption for allowing life to pass him by. For me, having been through English classes and college and such, which they, you know, every English professor tried to find a Christ figure in every book that you read, no matter how bizarre or weird the relationship was. This is, this is the Christ story. I mean, Clint Eastwood goes from being this craggy old guy to realizing that he needs to sacrifice himself to save this Hmong teenager. <laughs> so, I mean, and even then, I noted, he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out. He's almost doing where his hands are out by his side like he's on a cross. I watched it again and I'm going... That's about as close as you can get without making this an absolutely ridiculous parable. And of course, what's it all revolve around? A priest. And the priest is the, is the social conscience telling him what he needs to do and kind of telling him the way things are and how it should be. And so to me, that's what this film is ultimately about, is realizing that at some point you reach a, reach a point in life where you realize that you may need to sacrifice something significant, if not your own life, for the benefit or greater good of someone or some other group of people. And that's why I wouldn't say this is Christ-like. If anything, it's more the thief on the cross repentance and sacrifice at the end of your life. Ooh, oh, I like that. That's a, that's uh that's that's a good that's a good little little look there. 
I mean, I, I do think this one is theme heavy and there are some themes you can bring into this that are a little meta and outside of what's in the actual story, which Dana talked about before, talking about Clint's career and, and the characters he's portrayed and bringing them to now and what many thought that this was his crescendo, his final film. But putting within the text, I, I think they spell out in the beginning to me that this this is a movie about life and death. And, and amongst that, it's about the legacy that you left, the world that's changing amongst that legacy that you left, and fearing that what you did and what you stood for isn't really going to matter anymore. There's a lot of grief in there, grieving not just for it's seemingly the one person that he really loved and the one person that, that, he, that he, he, other than his dog, that he uh, appreciated in life, uh, in his wife, and kind of being alone with her gone. And not having that other connection with your family, you know, that that absentee legacy of love. So there's a lot to like unpack within this thing. And Clint has a way in his films of asking more questions than he is telling you uh, answers and telling you ideas. And I think this is a good example of that. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot more that we can talk about as we go. But uh, that's kind of would, would be how I would can introduce what, what this film's about for me. I'm just going to add one thing here quickly, which is the comedian Alan King used to do this bit where he would bring all these obituaries and how, you know, you'd have this 80-year-old guy and he'd be survived by his wife, who's 79. Then he'd bring in this guy who's 101 who passes. He's survived by his wife, who's 100. And it was always the situation where men died because their wives ultimately drive them or nag them into death. It was a big funny bit that he did all the time. And I used to think it was true. I'm now to the point of going, men become so reliant upon their wives, especially after long periods of marriage. Men die early because men cannot survive without their wives at that point in time. And ultimately, that's part of the story of this, which is he's looking for purpose at this point in time because his wife's gone. And the purpose he had was to make her happy and safe and protected, and that's gone. So now he needs to move on and find some other purpose. Very well said, and and something that hits close home to me because um, I I lost my mom in 2016, and my dad was always a um, the Robin to my mom's Batman, uh, and and um, he's seventy, he's seventy four now, I think, um, and it was you know it was a, a really long process for him, you know, learning how to, to live solo and, and live with really just her memory and, and obviously his, fa- his family around him. So that's, uh, we were much better children than, uh, than Walt's kids. Yeah. But it's, uh, that is, that's what well said, Dana, very, very real. And obviously one, a few of the things that we haven't touched upon the relationship with his children for people from that generation, being able to connect with their children, then we didn't really touch on the military angle. That's obvious in this film or at least pretty out in front we didn't really discuss the cultural evolution in neighborhoods particularly in urban settings that i think is kind of out here so there are quite a few sociological avenues to explore throughout the course of the film that's why i oddly think this is a little bit somewhat of a unicorn of a film i also wonder why it was kind of wildly successfully popular given its subject material and its kind of star. I mean, there's really nobody of any repute in the film other than a few character actors that I've seen before and other stuff. 
except Clint Eastwood. I'm going to admit something. I'm watching this film and I'm seeing shadows of my dad in Clint Eastwood. Right down to the fact that I kept saying it over and over. The kids never knew him when he was when I was a kid. When I was a kid, my dad was Archie Bunker <laughs> and kind of waltish. It wasn't until about early 1980, all of a sudden he like flipped and I couldn't believe it. The 1984, he voted for Walter Mondale. And I went like, what the fuck are you doing? I mean, you voted for Goldwater and thought he was too liberal. (laughs) I mean, I I had to start questioning certain names for ethnic groups and wondering if I was doing it correctly by the time I got to high school, because the only thing I ever heard was certain names. But all of a sudden, it just changed. It flipped. So I think there's a whole generation of people like me whose dad was like this. Either they were in Korea, World War II, early Vietnam, that had this kind of mentality, and you kind of had a relationship to what was going on with him and saw it. So it's time for one of BPC's favorite questions. Is Clint Eastwood a good actor? (laughs) I saw this on the sheet, and I wasn't sure if you guys were proposing this on your own end or if we're just doubling down on top of what we uh, dabble with. But yes, uh, I have long been a defender of this one, and I'm usually alone in the conversation. But I, I do think that Clint is a good actor. I think he's a borderline great actor. I think that he, he has his own style. He has a movie star persona that allows him to maybe get away with a little more than some other actors would. But he, he also has this glow about him where he takes the stage and turns the character into something unique. And, and, and you know, now I know there's probably people scoffing at the word unique because he plays the same guy all the time. Well, no, there is a charm to that, though. There is an ability to take the stage and be like, you know, OK, however similar this may have been to the last character I did. This character now makes sense within this narrative because I'm doing it. And uh, I've always appreciated what he's done. And I love his nominations. I think his nominations are fully deserved. People love to cry about the Million Dollar Baby. I don't want to turn this into a Million Dollar Baby podcast. But he is phenomenal in that film. And he's the, the fifth. I guess he's the fifth guy. Someone got snubbed that year and they all like point to him as that he shouldn't have been nominated. But he totally should have been nominated for Unforgiven, and he totally should have been nominated for that one. And I do think there's a world where he could have been nominated for this one, too. But I'm, I'm all pro-Clint as a good actor. I'd love to hear what you guys uh, have on it, though. I think it depends on the film. If he's doing kind of his dirty, hairy persona, I think the movies are good. But that's movie star Clint, where he's kind of one note for me. Like, I'm not a great judge of acting because I, for having done acting for many years in my early years, I really don't understand quite sometimes how to grade a performance in the way that other actors would. But he just seems kind of grisly. So it's hard to register because some it's not really a showy part, per se, with a lot of the stuff that he does. I think... Like Unforgiven or Million Dollar Baby are much more layered roles, particularly Unforgiven for me, where there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of grief that he's kind of adjusting between, and he has to kind of go through a character catharsis by the end of the film to get where he's going, which ironically is a twist of fate comparative to this movie, because you're expecting him to kind of do the Unforgiven end of the film type thing and shoot up the house and then he doesn't 
So I think you're playing with the audience's expectations there in the same way that you were kind of doing that with Unforgiven to begin with. I actually look at those films somewhat similarly, or at least in partnership with Clint's career, because this, while it wasn't his last film, did seem fitting that this is kind of his last film of repute as its star. I think he obviously has directed other films that were highly regarded after this, notably American Sniper. But outside of this movie, all of the stuff where he's been an actor in it, I don't think has quite gotten to the level that this did or any of his other works before this kind of got to. And so I don't know. I, I'll say it's on a case by case basis. There are films where I think he him pulling double duty has kind of unfortunately, I would say probably sapped his performance. But like Good, the Bad and the Ugly for me is also another one where he's very layered and multiform. I'm going to fit between the two of you. I watched uh, the coffee shop scene from Sudden Impact. I watched the bank robbery scene, which was the opening scene from Dirty Harry. I watched the Mexican standoff from The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And I watched the last scene from Unforgiven. Clint Eastwood is a phenomenal actor when he just uses his facial expressions and his body language. When he opens his mouth, he loses a lot. He has an ability to convey emotion by squinting, scrunching his face, positioning his body, doing little things that I just found phenomenal. Because in the opening scene, Dirty Harry, he bites the hot dog. He goes out and he starts shooting. And he's chewing the entire time he's shooting people with his 357 Magnum. I mean, the coffee shop scene, he's just... Phenomenal because he's got a blank stare. It doesn't matter to him. Excuse me, did you just get a large fact of movie history, like an iconic fact wrong? Did you say 357 Magnum? Because it's a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world that will blow your head clean off. If you watch the dirt, all four of the Dirty Harry films, there's a 357 Magnum and a 44 Magnum. Yeah, he uses the 357 in the sequel. I just I just saw it. The uh, the sequel is uh, man. I'm, uh, I think it's Magnum Force. Is Magnum Force is the sequel? Yeah, I think he does. Okay, use the that sounds right. There. But you're but you're right. The quote is the is the 40. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, all right. So it was one movie off. All right. So ultimately, that's my position, which is when it's just him and you're looking at his eyes and you're trying to read what he's doing. He's phenomenal. He has an ability to convey emotion and disdain or hatred or or what's the term I'm looking for where he just doesn't care by just his body language and his facial expressions it's only when he starts delivering the lines it sounds like the same character over and over and over and you really don't get it I, I think that's the that's the key and quite frankly that's part of the biggest part of acting is the little things like that He's a wonderful, intuitive actor, like you said, and, and he internalizes things and he lets the people around him cook. You know, he, he lets them do the things and, he, and he, he can absorb and bounce off of him. There's a ton of it going on in Unforgiven. Uh, we mentioned Millie Old Baby. Uh, an, another one uh, that's a very underrated performance of him is Bridges of Madison County, where he has to stew a lot in that and, and really sh- lets Meryl Streep showcase herself. And what I think is, 
is probably the best performance of her career. It would be at least my favorite of hers. Uh, so yeah, that's well said, Dana. I mean, he's he's it's a lot of what he's doing is sitting and reacting as opposed to commit. I don't know that I'd want to see him play Henry the Eighth or Hamlet. You know, that might not work out so well. But uh, so I guess that's a limitation in his act. No, but I think he's found the right roles as a result of that. I think there are certain things that he's been able to choose for himself that reflect his range. I don't think he has a particularly broad range. But then again, there are certain actors that don't like Tom Hanks doesn't exactly have a broad range either. He's played many different types of people, but they're all within a certain range of the everyman. Like he's not going to play the really awkward man off in the corner type of thing. He's not going to take plays no more British or no more Bostonian accents. (laughs) Well, I was going to say no more fat suits. Wow. I mean, Colonel Tom oh, Parker Lord. was kind of a stretch for him, and it did not work. Just my opinion, but that that was not not good. Uh, you're not going to get arguments from me. All right. So the other thing we mentioned, and I think it's an important part of discussing any kind of race relation films in a modern day sense, is this a white savior movie? And in order to find whether that's accurate or not, we kind of have to define what that is. So what exactly is it? I I guess I'll go first. So I, I saw this on the sheet for this and, you know, did a lot of looking into it and a lot of reading and, and whatnot. And, you know, this has kind of been um, on my mind here the last 48 hours, kind of doing some soul searching with this film and with some of the reactions that have come to it. And I wasn't sure if the whole podcast was going to be this or not. So I, I'm just kind of coming into it because there is a little bit of a, you know, there's a little bit of reality check sometimes when you have something that, that, you watch and you appreciate, then you view other people's reactions, people from different uh, walks of life and, and different demographics and how they react to things. So based on the definitions that I have read on the white savior, you know, this does kind of seem to be what they're talking about, you know, where you have a, um, you know, a, a white character who's disassociated from his walks of life becomes friendly with uh, a minority character or characters and ultimately either sacrifices themselves for the benefit of them. The relationship that he has with them benefits in a certain way. There's something like the, the blind side where Sandra Bullock takes in uh, Michael Orr and... Which has obviously taken on a new meaning lately. Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, there are different forms of it, but I mean, I'm going off of Wikipedia and it's just kind of a postmodern definition as it goes. So um, it did seem like this fit the bill at least as far as what what I was the definitions that I have read for it. I know it's complicated to kind of bring it up. And the fact that all three of us are white middle class dudes from America probably doesn't help any. But I think there's an element at least as far as I understand it of the white savior. It's not just aid to a minority. It's helping to change their social status, their class, their race or the way they're understood within a particular minority group. In the end, while he is giving aid and sacrificing himself for their benefit, it's not to change their appearance with other white people. It's not to change their socioeconomic status. It's not to promote their racial inclusion. I don't know if I would necessarily define this as a white savior per se. 
based on those lines. If we're, if we're going to be really technical about how it is, I can understand and I will appreciate and respect anybody who tries to argue the opposite side, but I'm not sure I see this one necessarily as that, especially in the context where we're talking about Green Book or Driving Miss Daisy or, you know, any insert any race relations film that's kind of like that, The Help as a white savior movie. I just don't find this to be quite on the same lines. I know this film has its complications, but this is not one of them I find to be necessarily accurate, just personally. I'm going to come at this with a little different view. I think a white savior movie or a white savior situation needs to have some level of self-fulfillment by the actor or something that they're deriving a benefit for their ultimate feeling of goodness or of benefit derived from them for being the savior. Because history has shown many people who have been in unique situations. I mean, you can go back to the civil rights movement and talk about so many celebrities who were white, who were willing to sacrifice their careers for the civil rights movement in the 60s without having any benefit for it. Are you going to call them white saviors or are you going to call them people who are going to utilize their position as a white popular person within society to try to equalize the playing field and benefit a group that you believe is being oppressed? I mean, I thought about this for a minute because as a profession, I do social security disability. Most of my clients are minorities or the ultimate poor that have not worked or cannot work because they're sick. Am I always going to be deemed a white savior because I spent my entire career trying to help people who couldn't help themselves against the government? No, because, yeah, I do well for myself, but I could make probably a lot more money in corporate law than I could in doing what I do. But I do it because I feel that there's a certain element. I've been placed in a position to provide a service and to be helpful to people who can't necessarily help themselves and to try to help justify or change injustice. And so I that's my difference. Is the person doing this for their own benefit and their own feeling of being the savior or are they doing it because they acknowledge that they've been placed in a position where they're at an advantage and using that advantage for somebody else with an ultimate altruistic view way of handling stuff i think my generation would actually refer to that more as an ally and i would see that more in that vein as opposed to like there are obvious examples where someone's being overly portrayed as the best version because they're the good white person and they made up for all race relations in the entire south through their good kindly act of giving somebody a job yeah, that's not exactly what happens in this movie, as far as I'm concerned. And I assume you're using a white Southern accent. <sighs> I was not trying to be completely overt, but sure. I thought he was doing Gregory Peck in To Kill a Mockingbird right there. That's that's what he was going for. But um, no, and just to, Dana, what, what you're saying too is, uh, the other thing I, I say is like, listen, I love the reactions that anyone has to any film. And I, I always want to have those conversations. And like, let's talk about the film. Let's talk about where you were... Uh, where you, why you thought it stunk, why you thought it it offended you, or why you thought it was bad for 
um, the future of storytelling. But I, I have a little, I take a little issue when we get into like what stories should and shouldn't be told. You know, you shouldn't tell this story because of this. And, and you know, Dana, you described the work that you do. Now, if I were to write a screenplay about that, it might get dubbed as a white savior screenplay. And that's where it's like, well, you know, let me tell the story. And then after the story's told, as long as no one's being offensive or doing anything hurtful or harmful for intentionally, let's tell the story and see where it goes. I, I think that, that that type of labeling can be a little dismissive of the storytelling process. And I, I there's two reasons where I don't think that this is a white savior movie. One of them is really, Tom, you brought it up in the front with him not being Jesus, but being being the, uh, the the crook on the cross, this is an anti-hero. You know, this guy is not, he is not a, 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 a white bread, you know, let's all get fired up and, and give it. No, he's a, he's a, he's an obvious racist. He's trigger happy. He's potentially a war criminal. It, it's, you know, there, he is, he is not your token hero. He's an anti-hero and he does what he does his way. And is ultimately he sacrifices himself we're not saying everyone should live their life their life as Walt Kozlowski. So th- that's kind of one of the big reasons why I didn't see this as your token your token white savior. Well, are we ready to dig more into the film? Dad, do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Clint Eastwood stars in a poignant and thought-provoking drama which unfolds in a changing American neighborhood where the echoes of a bygone era collide with the realities of modern life. Walter Kowalski, Eastwood is a cantankerous Korean War veteran and retired auto worker. His world is a small, rundown neighborhood that has evolved around him, becoming a haven for Hmong immigrants. Despite his deep-seated prejudice and gruff exterior, Walt finds himself reluctantly drawn into the lives of his Hmong neighbors after witnessing a violent incident involving a teenage boy named Tao, B. Vang. As Walt reluctantly becomes a protector and mentor to Tao, he confronts his own demons, challenging his long-held prejudices and uncovering unexpected common ground with his new neighbors. Eastwood's portrayal of Walt is nothing short of extraordinary. He brings a complex character to life, imbuing him with equal parts vulnerability and defiance. The film beautifully explores themes of redemption, reconciliation, and the power of human connection in the face of cultural and generational divides. Gran Torino is a masterful exploration of the evolution of man's soul set against a backdrop of a changing America. It's a reminder that even in the twilight of our lives, we have the power to change, to heal, and to find unexpected friendship in the most unlikely places. Thank you. Did you know? Walt's dog, Daisy, is Clint Eastwood's beloved family retriever in real life. Did you know? In terms of box office, this movie is the most successful Clint Eastwood movie ever, both in the US and the UK, but not with inflation. Taking inflation into account, his most successful movies are Every Which Way But Loose and Any Which Way You Can. Did you know? Clint Eastwood's character is a Korean War veteran, which he has played in other movies such as Heartbreak Ridge and Absolute Power. In real life, however, the actor's penchant for dropping ambiguous Korean War references is considered audacious by those who know him, because for his entire stint in the Army, he was a lifeguard at the post-swimming pool at Fort Ord, California. 
he never actually set foot in Korea. Did you know? Walt Kowalski's gun collection seems to consist of weapons he used in the military. His rifle is an American M1 Garand, a 9.5 pound .30-06 gas-operated rifle. You can tell I'm not particularly up on gun culture. It was first issued during World War II, then reissued in Korea before being phased out by the M14 Selective Fire 308 rifle. His pistol is an M1911A1 and a 45 ACP semi-automatic handgun, also issued during the Korean War. No one was breaking into that swimming pool there. <laughs> well, particularly minorities. Anyway, did you know? According to B. Vang, Tao Lor, the Hmong actors and actresses for this movie were isolated from the rest of the cast and crew. According to Vang, efforts by the Hmong actors and actresses to correct the portrayal of Hmong traditions were ignored. He has also refuted claims that the Hmong actors and actresses were encouraged to improvise. According to Vang, when he tried to improvise, Clint Eastwood told him to, quote, stick to the script. Vang also stated that the cast and crew had attended a baseball game, but the Hmong actors and actresses were not invited. It was assumed that the Hmong actors and actresses were immigrants and did not know about baseball, but the majority of the Hmong actors and actresses were U.S. natives. Bivang later participated in a parody of this movie called Tao Does Walt, Lost Scenes from Grand Torino from 2010, in which he played an elderly Hmong man to a teenage Caucasian boy, highlighting perceived racial stereotyping in the original scene. And with that, we will take our first break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 183rd episode, we discuss the gangster thriller Key Largo from 1948, celebrating its 75th anniversary. Directed and written by John Huston, co-written with Richard Brooks, music by Max Steiner, starring Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Lionel Barrymore, and Edward G. Robinson. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Gentlemen, we have best performance up. I'll give it to our guest. Who did you have as your best performer? Let's see here. Clint? <laughs> I had to go the total package with Clint here. Clint as uh, as a director, producer, actor, even writing the uh, help, helping co-write the song in the cl- and sing in the, cl- the song in the closing credits. Uh, yeah, it's to me, he's he's the show here and uh, an easy choice for for best performance here. I have nothing to add. I have him as my best performer, too, for the exact same reason. Yeah, hard to imagine who else could have pulled it off at this time. I, you, you could have gone with Morgan Freeman and, and dodged the whole white savior thing, but um, I think he could have maybe done it. But other than I that, think I think it's, it's Clint. crusty old fart, Harrison Ford. Ooh, okay. Well, he's kind of playing that character now on Shrinking, although I think... He, He's kind of gotten into American treasure emeritus status. True. Yeah, he's he's kind of as much as a curmudgeon as he's been portrayed in popular society over the last 10 to 15 years. He signed that kind of softening enough. So now he's becoming the lovable teddy bear grandpa. <laughs> Not unless he's being de-aged. Well, yeah. okay. <laughs> Moving past that, since we were in consensus on the first category, best secondary performance, who did you have down? I, I went with the uh, the, the Hmong gang. 
here uh, as the heels. Um, I really thought they were menacing. Uh, this is a movie with a lot of amateur actors, so it's tough getting Oscar caliber performances or even you know baseline level performances out of a lot of what you had, considering some of the dense script and whatnot. But I, I, I really thought like Spider and the gang were pretty menacing and really like elicited a reaction of me every time I see this movie. You know, you get a little angry. Gang recruiting is a real is a really real and scary thing, and I thought this movie portrayed it in in a pretty a pretty sharp way. Uh, so I, I went secondary performance with the Mung gang because they, you know, they totally, they, they get that reaction out of me every time. It's an interesting Avenue to travel. I don't think we've ever had like a, a group necessarily nominated for a category before, but you like to break ground on this show all the time. Don't you? That's right. I've always liked the NWO. So, you know, a good heel faction's always going to, uh, going to break with, I know you're not a, a wrestling guy, but that's the reference there. Even though she wasn't the best actress, N.A., her, I thought she did a pretty good job. I start, I did some research. She'd studied drama, like, privately for, like, three years. But her uh, resume was that and being in a high school production when she got that part. And I thought for the limited acting she had done, she did a pretty darn good job. And I thought she had probably the most impact of any of the actors who are not Eastwood, with the possible exception of the priest, who did okay, but I thought he was a little, I don't know, I don't know, I just didn't, it was okay. So I have her as my most charismatic, because I do think she becomes somewhat of the linchpin or the turn of the film, when she really starts to reach out and befriend Walt is when kind of this softening of him starts to happen and the rest of the revolving action actually starts to take place. His walls start to come down and the rest of it. So I think as an audience, we're supposed to find her the most redeeming, warm, friendly character on purpose. And so I would think she's an obvious choice for most charismatic, but I actually did have the priest as my best secondary. I know that some people would probably find him very earnest, and I think that has something to do with how he looks. But at the same time, this is a guy that kind of becomes the moral compass of the film. He has been asked to get Walt to confess, which you know by the end when he actually does, because you know he will at some point. that They can't just keep bringing it up for it not to pay off in the end. But by the time he actually would confess, it will have some significance in it. And... Every time he comes around, it's to supposedly convince Walt of what the, the true right action should be, even though it's not the action that Walt will inevitably do. So while he may be, in essence, a MacGuffin to move the plot along, I still like the performance. Yeah, I like this a lot. This is he's he's good in this and he does kind of get better every time. And this was a role that a lot of Hollywood actors were like clamoring for. Like this was and and they really Clint was like, nah, this we need to find someone unknown. We need to find someone that kind of matches. And and that they that's there's really only one notable name in this, and like John Carroll Lynch as the barber. But other than that, everyone's pretty much an, an amateurish actor, and it does create a nice little balance within the movie. So uh, and, and Clint has been known to do that from time to time in, in his casting to go. Sometimes it's the Hollywood stars, the Hanks and the Damons, and other times we're getting an unknown in here. Um, so from from Gene Hackman to the Schofield kid. There are some known or at least 
I recognize their faces, character actors, like both of his sons are guys I've seen in other stuff. And the one wife that's in this a lot, I've seen her in a bunch of stuff too. Like, I want to say she's in Rocky Balboa, the sixth Rocky film. She's the person that comes back around that like has some significance from the original film moving towards this one. I think it's a recasting obviously, but she's supposed to take the place of the girl. He helps walk home early on in the, the original Rocky. Yeah. So I, 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 there are some familiar faces among the white people, at least for me, but yeah, obviously that particular actor, I don't think I've really seen him in anything else that I can recall. He looks like some other guys I've seen in uh, some other stuff, but I don't think that particular actor I've seen in anything. No, he did some TV stuff and whatnot, but much of those. Uh, Dana, what was your aside? Well, my aside was is they missed a golden opportunity for Walt to note how the older sister, Anaya's character, was like his wife. Because ultimately, that would have tied the film together. That That's why she had so much influence. There were certain aspects about her that reminded him of his wife. And this was kind of his way of moving forward in her memory to have a tie to move into this direction. I think it would have explained his change in behavior much differently than it did. Because I kept going, I don't quite understand why he's changing his attitude. So here's why I disagree with that point. You can make that projection as an audience and it'd be perfectly fine. But if they explicitly say somewhere in there, you remind me a lot of my wife, I think it somehow unintentionally becomes a little sexualized in a way it's not intended to be. And so I'm I'm actually happier with them leaving that out. Yeah, all good thoughts there. All good thoughts there. Most charismatic for either of you. I'll go again. Uh, So I I went with the Hmong culture in this. I I thought it's a really nice touch, this movie. This could have just been... Uh, generic rundown other side of the tracks neighborhood and just using just the typical tropes that you know these types of movies may do and I, I thought going out of your way to cast all among actors and and bring in among advisor and using uh, qualities of the culture to not, I mean really educate or or just um, enlighten parts of the country you guys say you're um, you know you you live around those communities I mean from from New York I mean I knew nothing of of any of this or, or their, their plight from, you know, the hills of Vietnam to, to America after the war and all that. So that, that stuff is actually kind of genuinely like you you learn something about it. So I I think it's a nice touch in this movie to be a a little different with that and to recreate a lot of jobs for, uh, for actors in a community that don't have a lot with that uh, rather than just kind of casting your typical um, Hollywood, uh, Hollywood extras. So um, that's where I went with, uh, with charismatic. Cause I think there is a, um, there is a charisma to that, and there uh, is a vibrance to that that adds to this movie. Yeah, I wonder if some of this is a little bit lost on me, having grown up around these types of families before, and it's relatively normal for me, having had friends in that community before. If I, I guess I just don't have quite the level of appreciation that somebody that's truly on the outside would have. For me, I went with Eastwood. Uh, you can say what you want, but... He is a movie star. He has a, just a presence of being on screen. Even when he's a 90-some-year-old man, he still has a presence that just lights up a screen. 
I don't understand it. I don't can't explain it, but there's just something about him that there's a certain level of charisma that comes across regardless of what he says, does, or is at that particular moment. Even the bizarre thing where he's talking to an empty chair at the Republican National Committee. Still one of the strangest moments I've ever seen on TV. <laughs> uh, but it was still Clint Eastwood, and you're going, yeah, well, okay, it's bizarre, but he can pull, kind of pull it off. <laughs> uh, Let's move to best scene then. I yes. gave you all my nominees ahead of time, but I had After Funeral, Rescuing Tao, Rescuing Sue, Mingling, which is kind of that first like party and where Walt kind of starts to come out of his shell a little bit. I have the Tao montage, which is I didn't really know what to call him doing chores and fixing up the neighborhood kind of thing. Then I have Being a Man, which is him at the barber and all of Walt's lessons from that. Fallout being kind of the shootout with the gang coming through and kind of upending things again. Walt's last stand and then epilogue. Did you have any to add? There, I had two. The confession scene. Oh, sure. Inside sure, the, sure. the confessional. And also when his when his son and his wife try to put him in the retirement home. And you get oh, that, that iconic gif of him looking up into the... And it just kicks him out of the house with the phone and the grabber. Um, I, I just love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dad, did you have anything to add? No, I didn't. So best scene. Yeah, to me, the best scene of this movie, just on, on a multi-layered end, is... Uh, as we have it, I think as you wrote it here, is Walt's last stand. It's a culmination of all his characters together from the outlaw Josie Wales to Dirty Harry to Will Money from Unforgiven uh, to, to the man with no name. It's all of them kind of coming together for one last stand. And really, in, he doesn't die in any of those movies. All those movies, he kind of rides off into the sunset. And, and this is the one where he takes the bullet himself. And it's just... It's just like him to subvert, sub, uh, subvert the expectations. And to me, that's the scene of the movie and, and one of the best scenes in his uh, illustrious career. I'm glad you went with the obvious choice because that was the one I was kind of hung up on, but it's probably not the one that I wanted to necessarily go with. So I'll just go with the one that I also think is probably my favorite scene in the movie. And that's kind of the mingling where he kind of starts to come out of his shell. He realizes that despite his rather overt racism there really isn't that much different between them even though the cultural differences are there and yes he has to learn not to touch a Hmong person's head but outside of that you know he's enjoying the food he's enjoying even the young people being around and with the exception of the interaction with the grandma he seems to be able to get along with everybody else so I think that's kind of where the softening starts of him and i think the the second half of the movie kind of takes off at least for me yeah cool cool yeah it's not it's not a clint Eastwood movie unless he's inappropriately flirting with a much younger uh, girl too that's kind of how, how most clint movies go so fair yes i'm exactly the same as you tom oh wow that's not shocking it, it happens every friggin week because the mingling scene to me is where he's really having his moment of realization. You know, he comes, he's kind We're not of, so different, it, you and I. Yes. <laughs> Can I have a hug? Yes. Anyway, so that's, that's exactly where I came from with the mingling, which um, 
to me is the best scene and the most or my favorite scene because ultimately that's the turning point of the film. He goes from being the crusty guy that you hated to finding some level of redemption and having some rooting interest in what ultimately happens to him and how he handles things from that point of the film up. Favorite scenes? I already gave mine. Who would like to go next? I've already given mine. Oh, so you went with mingling as well? Yes. Your best and your favorite is the same? Yes. Uh, yeah, so my favorite is is because, man, you know, so like I, I get such a, I don't know what, it just gets me every time. I have such a visceral reaction to when Talf has, finds the job, he's got his tool belt, he's got his tools, he's really fired up and excited for this kind of new way of life he has. And when the gang corners him in the alley and breaks his, his tape measure, breaks some of the tools, um, the cigarette burn and all that. And, and then, you know, Tao comes back and he's so upset just to tell Walt that some of his tools are broken. Oh, man, it breaks my heart. That whole segment breaks my heart every time I see this movie. So my favorite scene is when Walt just goes to the guy's house, the the, the heavy set gang member, and just pulls him out and just beats the shit out of him. You know, I, I, get, I get like, I get a fist bump. Yeah, get him, get him. And it's like the physicality that that uh, Eastwood, along with some tricky camera work, is able to get out uh, at that age is just is awesome and uh that that's my favorite scene man when he just he just beats the shit out of the Mung gang member i'm gonna admit that my favorite scene was a toss-up and i went with the mingling because ultimately it was the turning point of the film but i remember my dad dragging me down to the or to austin's gas station when i was about seven or eight and hanging out with all the old guys and the the profanity that I'd never heard before just flying around there while they're sitting around watching television and just shooting the breeze. And, you know, this is what it's like to be a man. You sit around and you bitch about your wives and you bitch about this and you bitch about that. And, you know, and then you talk about how, you know, cause Austin would actually was the guy who would go out and pump the gas and he'd come back and he, and he had a stutter and he'd talk about how, you know, this girl came out and she's got a skirt that barely covered her ass. And I'm going, this is manhood? Never quite understood it. That's why I decided ultimately not to go with it because I'm kind of like, wow, okay, not quite what I expected. I mean, if you need a haircut, you old Italian son of a bitch prick barber. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you never, I still can laugh. I shouldn't laugh because, you know, it's a disability, but Austin trying to say son of a bitch with a stutter. <laughs> uh, Floyd was such a, I liked Floyd, but boy, was he a, he'd always buy me a, a nice uh, cherry, oh, what was it? It was, it was uh, orange and cherry and crush. Crush. That was it. He'd always buy me, and that was still when it was a there dime. Isn't a cherry flavor of crush? No, 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 it's it was strawberry. Cherry crush. I'm pretty sure it's strawberry. It was cherry crush. <sighs> and there was cherry crush. That was my favorite. That there's no finding that there's ever been a cherry. Okay, so challenge my memory, you son of a bit, <laughs> bitch. And now that we've offended the entire stuttering community. <laughs> I need to apologize. 
<laughs> there might be some additional disclaimers put in the front of this one. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Most indelible for me is Walt's Last Stand. The ending of the movie, it's been a long time. I don't think I've seen this since I originally saw it in probably 2009. But it only took me a little bit before I remembered, oh yeah, he doesn't kill everybody at the end of the movie. He ends up getting shot. But yeah, that that to me, once I started watching the film again, was the thing that I remembered most, what is it now, 15 years later, 14 years later? Yeah, me also. So get that out of the way. Indelible for me, I got to go get off my lawn, man. I mean, for, yeah, for better okay. or for worse, you know, I, I don't know if uh, that's a great thing, but uh, it's him with the gun. I mean, that's the meme. That's the, that's, I mean, this is, this has made it into lexicon where people are joking or they're not joking, but get off my lawn is a, is a phrase that we, we all know. And it is from this. So I think that scene of him with the, you know, with the rifle and, and, you know, really telling both parties to get off his lawn. But yeah, so to me, that was the most indelible moment. It's definitely a term to itself that it has its own meaning now, you know, describing almost an entire generation with that one line. But that's a good spot for our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, releasing in the early part of this October, friend of the show, Adam Hitchcock of the Streaming Circuit Podcast and I are back with our special monthly series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half we will apply the Stan Lee rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. This month, we're covering the Avengers from 2012. Don't miss out. Make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Billy Miller, 43 American actor, was in the uh, soap operas The Young and the Restless, General Hospital, and All My Children. He won three daytime Emmys. Michael McGrath, 65 American actor, primarily a stage actor. He was in Nice Work If You Can Get It, Spamalot, and The Secret of Kells. Won the Tony in 2012 and originated the role of Patsy in Spamalot. Which must be a different role or at least something they added beyond the original uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Because I don't remember there being a Patsy in, in the original movie. Yes, it was played by Terry Gilliam in the movie. Okay. He, he followed behind Graham Chapman going <laughs> with the coconuts. <laughs> yeah. He had a little more advanced role in the, in the stage performance. I actually got to see the stage performance in New York. I absolutely loved it. It's one of the highlights of my theater going in the Big Apple. I think you still have your, how to put it, stage prop coconuts that you bought somewhere in the house. I did, but uh, our dog at the time, Zoe, decided they looked like a chew toy. (laughs) So there is a chunk taken out of them, but they're still usable. Yes, they're down on my shelf in the... uh, downstairs portion of my library so we remember these here fondly for their contributions to the arts with a moment of silence here in their honor thank you all right let's make the awkward transition we do every week with best funniest lines walt kowalski the obvious line sneering and aiming his gun get off my lawn Oh, I'll go. I'm rolling deep here tonight, guys. I got to be honest. Okay, here we go. Would it kill you to buy American? 
Jesus. Walt, I'll blow a hole in your face then go inside and sleep like a baby. Walt, and I'll just be honest, all of the best lines in this movie are probably Walt, but ever notice how you come across somebody once in a while you shouldn't have fucked with? That's me. Okay, uh, Walt, I'll have a Pabst, a shot of Jack, and whatever he's having. Father Jankovich, I'll have a Diet Coke. Walt, bullshit, this is a bar, you'll have a drink. Father, um, I'll have a gin and tonic. Walt, boy. Father Janovic, what can I do for your Walt? Walt, I'm here for confession. Father, holy Jesus, what did you do? <laughs> Walt, take these three items, some WD-40, a vice grip, and a roll of duct tape. Any man worth his salt can fix almost any problem with this stuff alone. He probably forgot a beer. Beer would be the fourth item. <laughs> it's It solves most problems. After a beer, you can come up with a whole bunch of potential solutions. Yeah, the duct tape becomes... You get much more creative with the duct tape after a, a few handful of pabsts. You should tell my duct tape tape joke sometime. Your duct tape joke? My duct tape joke sometime. There you go. I'll segue to this. Walt, give me another beer, dragon lady. This one's empty. Walt, to father, I think you're an overeducated 27-year-old virgin who likes to hold the hands of superstitious old ladies and promise them everlasting life. Continuing the theme, Walt, you want to know what it's like to kill a man? Well, it's goddamn awful. That's what it is. The only thing worse is getting a medal for killing some poor kid that wanted to just give up. That's all. Yeah, some scared little, I won't say that word, just like you. I shot him in the face with that rifle you were holding in there a while ago. Not a day goes by that I don't think about it, and you don't want that on your soul. Sue, there's a ton of food. Walt, yeah, well, just keep your hands off my dog. Sue, no worries, we only eat cats. Uh, Walt, you'd think the cold would keep all the idiots out. Walt, the thing that haunts a guy is... The stuff he wasn't ordered to do. Walt, you've got your whole life ahead of you, but for me, I finish things. Walt, why the hell does everybody want my car? <laughs> Father, Walt Kowalski once said to me that I knew nothing about life or death because I was an overeducated 27-year-old virgin who held the hand of superstitious old women and promised them eternity. Well, Walt definitely had no problem calling like he saw it. But he was right. I really knew nothing about life or death until I got to know Walt. And boy, did I learn. Walt, these guys don't want to be your bro, and I don't blame them. Yeah, I'm out. I'm good. Dana, I have one last one in, con in the confessional box. Father uh, Janovich, that's it? Walt, that's it. That's bothered me most of my life. And that's all. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to admit, some of the best lines are unfortunately undermined by the inclusion of certain racial slurs. So it cannot be provided on this program. And I was afraid that I, that I wouldn't have a lot of quotes because of that. And then I watched the movie and I'm like, oh, well, actually, all the, all the non-heavily racist quotes are amazing, too. So it's like it's, it's a... Uh, it's not just the, the the just laden with the racist language. I mean, because I mean, there's just 
a ton that you just throw out because it's like I, I don't I don't feel comfortable even repeating this. No, they he he it is it is some kind of character. He's got a he does have a charisma, but it's definitely a, a good choice for most charismatic. All right. If you gentlemen are ready to proceed with me, the Stanley rubric is up next. We have Legacy up first. Dan, do you want to go first or second? I'll go second. Okay. I'll lead us off reluctantly. (laughs) I think this is one of those that it was big in the moment, but has since kind of faded away. I think part of it has to do with, had this been Clint's last movie and truly his last stand where he made his kind of last impression and he just was a, a director from there on out. I think this would have a bigger impact, but with every new movie that's thrown up on HBO max or whatever the fuck he's doing lately, like the mule or cry macho or whatever, he kind of undermines his own legacy a bit because it's like, Oh, Clint's got another movie he's acting in. All right, fine. I'm sure it'll be okay, but it's, it's, it's like watching Joe Namath on, on the uh, Rams at the end of his career. It's like watching, uh, the last stages of Peyton Manning. Uh, it's watching Tom Brady with the Buccaneers last year. It's just kind of like remembering them, how they were at their peak, and then remembering those last couple of years where they are just throwing the ball away early so that they don't get hit. It's just not the same. And so it undercuts a little bit of this within the audience's mind. I think... I'm going to give it just a little bit above average on both the industry and the audience because I think it's kind of a shared thought on where Eastwood is because he's been such a public presence that anything he does within the industry is always through the lens of how the audience receives him because I think most of what his industry persona has been is made by the fact of how the audience responds to him at the same time. That's why I think it's a very complicated discussion we had earlier between is he a movie star or is he an actor? And because he's kind of both, I'm going to go with a three and a three for a sex. My second? Unless you want to skip over. I, I don't know. Kieran might be chomping at the bit here. I think I want to go third. I want to go third this time. Okay. I think you're high, Tom. I think the industry liked this film when it came out. High in my score or just high, period? I've never seen you high. I can only imagine I've seen you drunk and you're a morose son of a bitch. But um, yeah, it's really not that different. Okay. Unless I'm watching The Hangover. I, you know, I watched The Hangover in theaters high, and that was an entertaining experience. Yeah, well, okay. I I have not experienced that, but that's okay. I don't need to necessarily because, you know, industry, I went with a 2.5 because. I don't think anybody considers this film when they're talking about Eastwood. This doesn't even make the top 10 of Eastwood films, either directed or acted. I think the Sergio Leone films are all in the top 10 to 15. This is about 20. All right, let's so let's go with this exercise here, and we'll just kind of count them out. Unforgiven has got to be near the top. Million Dollar Baby, those are in the top five. I think those are comfortably inside the top five. All right, so we've had Dirty Harry for its iconic status, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. What would be the fifth? Um, are we talking any which way but loose? Are we talking no. Bridges of Madison County? Are we talking In the Line of Fire? 
Well, let me uh, sidebar the the combo with just uh, saying before I, I uh, watched all of his directorial films, and I'll give you my top ten. This all is right. just his directorial, sure. so we'll go with this, and then we'll go back and then add in the the acted ones too. So I have it number one. Should I go ten to one, or should I go one to ten? Dealer's ten choice. Ten to one. Ten to one. All right, number ten I have coming in at his first film, Play Misty, for me. Good at film. Ten. Uh, at number nine, I have the outlaw Josie Wales. Interesting film, uh, which is referenced referenced quite a bit in this with him spitting the tobacco spitting, all uh, and then the the old woman spitting back at him. Yeah, I have Gran Torino coming in at number eight. At seven, I have High Plains Drifter, which is was his first uh, western directed. At number six, I have uh, Letters from Iwo Jima. The uh, that's the Japanese side of the two World War II movies he did. And frankly, I think the better movie over Flags of Our Fathers. Definitely, definitely, uh, and the one that was up for Best Picture and Director. At five, I have the movie from the same year, Changeling. At four, I have Bridges of Madison County. At three, I have Mystic River. At two, I have Million Dollar Baby. And at one, I have Unforgiven. So that's my top 10 directorial. Now, we're obviously some of those get slid out when we bring in his performances. Of course, you got like the Dollars Trilogy and the Dirty Harrys. That's instantly going to push their way in there. Well, I think from a legacy standpoint, American Sniper would probably wedge its way up the list just because of how big that movie was at the time. And that's my 11. That's my 11. So that just missed my top 10. So again, proves my point, which is between acting and directing, this probably is 15, maybe even in the 20 level. The public, this was out of sight, out of mind. No one remembers this film. I've mentioned this film to people and they're like, I think I might have seen that. And so I can't give it any more than a 1.5 because I don't think anybody really has watched it or thought about it or considered it in the pantheon of Eastwood. The only thing I would add to that is, is we mentioned before the get off my lawn portion of it from just the internet side of it and the fact that it is referred to a class of people as being the get off my lawn crowd usually referring to people just slightly older than you. I thought that was for him, but okay. But all right, so you have a four overall score. Yes. Yeah. So from an industry standpoint, I'm going to kind of lean more toward toward Dana. I, I don't think this is aged great in the industry. I, I think that there may have been people at the time saying this should have been up for Oscars and whatnot. I think looking back, I don't think any of them would second what they thought at this time you know i think the movie is a little clumsy in some of its areas you know there's the editing's not great and the acting if you know getting us past the fact that they're amateurs if we're going to hold them up to the grade the acting isn't isn't always great that the the script's a bit heavy-handed so i don't think this people look back and regret this not being up for picture or anything then you have the the controversies or whatever the the actor maybe looking back and not you know and criticizing it a bit so I, I think within the industry, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll probably tip my cap to Dana's 2.5 and and go there. Uh, from a public standpoint, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna disagree, and I think that this has stayed in people's minds. And I think if you say "get off my lawn," people know exactly what you're talking about. And I think if you look at like Eastwood as an actor, this is if you talk about him in the 2000s, I I think people remember this bef- before they remember. Million Dollar Baby. 
I think that they'll go to Gran Torino first. And, you know, the the mule is is kind of like a like a um, unofficial sequel to this uh, in, in a comedic standpoint. And I, I, I do think that this movie does live within the public zeitgeist. So I am going to give it a, a three point five for the public. Uh, along with Dana's 2.5 for the industry. So that that comes out to six, which I think ended up being the same that, that Tom had, right? Yep. So that'll be a 5.33 average between the three of us. I think my answer right on that. All right, impact and significance. Again, I think this is just a movie that was bigger in the moment. I only could give it about a 3.5 on the industry side of things just because it wasn't like a, a huge award winner, but it was kind of... Uh, small hit. I mean, there's really nobody in this except for Clint Eastwood. You're going on to it on the backing of it's a Clint Eastwood film. So it's probably his last stand as a true movie star where he could open a movie. And I mean, it's, I think it's a Warner brothers film. I'm pretty sure it he's, is. Yes. Yeah. It's still working for Warners cause he's had like a long relationship with them, but I don't know. I mean, it, was Warners necessarily counting on this, to be a $250 million grosser? Probably not. So I think it has to have at least a little bit of credence, but it's not to the level where it was like a huge sensation or it changed any industry policies or anything to that effect either. So I think it's somewhat of a generous 3.5, partly on the backing that I gave only a three in the, or I gave a three in the uh, legacy portion. I will go though with a four for the public. Again, I, I think this was big at the time. I think there were a lot of people that saw it. There were a lot of people that talked about it. I do think one of Dad's favorite bugaboos on the show is rentals. I think this was a highly rented movie. It was. It was. It definitely was. So it's something that I think, in addition to the internet, and this was kind of around the time where social media started to become big, that I think it has a, an effect even within the five years on us an audience that this is probably the last big impression they got of Clint Eastwood, because I don't think any other film of his has been near this level of success. So I went with a four on that side of it for a 7.5. Uh, you know, from an industry standpoint, there was like some buzz about this being snubbed at the Oscars. And I think that there was some audience people, you know, Dana, you said yourself, you were at, you're like, how did this not, how was this not up for best picture? So I, I do think, that if you look at it from that way, and it, it critically, I think it did pretty well uh, as far as, as the critics w came out. So I, I think there were a lot of people thinking that this was going to be his final film and that, that he was going to to ride out into the sunset. I do kind of, on the flip of what you were saying before, Tom, is I do kind of like that he's just riding his filmography to the grave. You know, he's just like, we're going to keep coming out of films until the good Lord takes me home. Uh, I do I do kind of appreciate that a little bit too, um, opposed to like a young Quentin Tarantino being like, my next one's my last. Yeah, but how many other directors are going in the opposite direction? I mean, Marty will be directing shit until he dies, and Michael Mann just said he was going to direct stuff till he dies. Ridley Scott's like half dead already, and he's still making two <laughs> films a year. Michael Mann took 15 years off in the middle, though. Like, at least Clint, Clint kept churning. But no, I, I saw from an, an industry standpoint, the impact I'm going to, I think you had a 3.5, Tom? On the industry side? Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm going to match that. I think I'm going to match that 3.5. I think that's about right. And I think from, a, from an audience, I mean, this, this made waves. 
it, it had great box office. I mean, 270 plus. So what was the budget? 30, 30 million, 40 million, something like that? I believe so, yeah. Made a ton of money. It put him back in the in the in the acting spot. I mean, he he listen, he had he had he had Mystic River, Million Dollar Baby. So he was he had been at the Oscars and it would Jima right after that. So he'd been at the Oscars, but this was like Oh man, everything this guy does is going to be big. And this, I don't know that it ever really went up from here for him. I think that this is like the top of the curve. And then from there, it kind of settled out and went down. And he had some nice, successful movies after, but this was kind of, there's a bit of a, um, an apex for him here with this, at least as far as the late end of his life. Um, so I'm going to go four here with that. So we'll call this a 7.5 total. All right. So matching my score exactly. Well, as long as we're doing that, I'll like, Match exactly, because that's exactly what I have. Cool. Well, I appreciate the easy math. So do you need help with the math on that, Tom? <laughs> if you'd like. I, I'm. Uh, you've already proved your math skills ahead, ahead of time, so. Yeah, I think it's 7.5. All right. Novelty is going to be an interesting conversation. Karen, do you think you want to go first on this one? I'll go. This is a complicated one, but... I'm going to lean into his filmography with this. So I think for like a non-Clint fan, they would go a, a way different way. If this is the first Clint movie you ever saw and you don't really care much for him, or maybe this would impact you, you, you might find this not novel at all. You might use the word trope a lot. And I, one trope that I don't think we get here is is that like, you know, the, w- when we talk about these types of movies, the trope is usually, oh, the old racist man finds the errors in his ways and is is learns and is is written i don't nothing really happen here like he goes to confession and he doesn't apologize for any of the really heinous stuff he does within the movie he doesn't really focus on the error of his ways he's at peace with the error of his ways and and he's he's just kind of getting a new suit and, and a, a a straight shave and and accepting his peace so i don't find it that tropey from that standpoint now, where I'm going to go where it's novel is the context of Clint Eastwood's career and tying together the suit with the cowboy hat, you know, the dirty Harry to the man with no name to Will Money and putting it all together. So there is some novelty there with that. So if you're a film historian and you appreciate Clint Eastwood, you can't look at this movie and not see some novelties. But that shouldn't be the way that you should look at every single film. This is the greatest, mil, uh, greatest film of all time podcast. And the rubric is here to kind of bring everything together in the light. So we can't just focus on Clint Eastwood here. So from that standpoint, there's probably a lot of elements that aren't very new. I want to bring in the Hmong culture because the, the, they haven't necessarily been represented in film this way before this point. And I think the population of Hmong actors, I think, has gone up since then. So I, I ultimately, this is a hard one. I ultimately settled with the six, you know, and I may be high on that, I guess. No, you're not. Apparently you have more to say, Dad. Uh, exactly. I mean, this is a classic story of redemption, and it went beyond normal redemption. Usually the redemption stories, the redeeming quality rides off into the sunset. This guy ended up buried six foot down. And that's where the ultimate redemption comes across. So this is unique to that extent. The fact that it played in urban culture where people had relationships, because at the time this film came out, everybody was seeing uh, an influence or an influx of minorities within certain urban communities. And I think this is a a precursor of the... 
I don't know how to put it without being offensive. This feeling among white, urban, middle-class America that they were being attacked or were going to be minimized by non-traditional white America. And I think it spoke to that. So I'm going with a six because I think it spoke to that. Although there's a ton of these movies, this had some unique aspect and told a story that was unique for the circumstance that about which it was written. So I'm going to be the high point man by far then. Oh God, my six is feeling low now. <laughs> well, I think this is a bit of a unicorn within Clint's filmography, let alone just in general. There is a multi-layering of different genre movies within one because while this kind of plays off of a somewhat familiar trope of the old person and the young person getting together and like recognizing that there's camaraderie between the two type of thing. I don't think that this follows along the same lines completely because you're still layering on issues of class, gender, age, and race all within this. And then even how many movies to this point had really dealt with white flight, because that's an element of this movie that while never directly discussed, is kind of front and center. Walt's the only like white person in his neighborhood because he just never decided to leave. Not because, you know, the, the, that everybody else moved in around him. There's really no gentrification per se. It's kind of the opposite. They all moved into his neighborhood and everybody that he knew left. He just never wanted to. Even within his own filmography, I can't remember too many movies where he is kind of the bad guy in a way. I mean, you mentioned that he's an anti-hero. He goes to some rather painstaking lengths to point out how racist this guy is. And even though Clint is somewhat of a conservative, I think he understands the level of maybe a sympathy or an empathy towards people of his age group and having to deal with issues similar to this. So I think it's a little bit more novel in just race relation movies, given that we talked about it being a potential white savior movie, but it's one of those where I don't think that that label is accurate. So even that, I, I would give an extra bump up. The reason why I'm going to end up, though, at a 7.5 is while the movie is subversive at the end, and I think that aids to its novelty in some regards, you have to, the only way it can be subversive at the end is relying upon knowing our relationship with Clint before that and with action figures up to that point. And so that's the only way this movie works is it has to be somewhat built upon all of the stuff that's come before it, both with our relationship to Clint and action heroes in general. So that's the only reason I ended up down a little bit further at a 7.5. I, I like it. I'd say the closest thing to he's been to an anti-hero maybe might be Unforgiven with more money uh, and maybe Absolute Power because he's kind of like a, a thief who's saving the day. But I don't know. I think you talked me up to a seven. So I think I'm going to move my six to, to a seven. Of course. I had already done the math. and How could you call Harry Callahan anything but an anti-hero? Yeah, I think he is uh, the original anti-hero. He is the original anti-hero, yeah, yeah. Until the second one when there's like people trying to do like at one up him and he's like, whoa, whoa, hey, listen, guys, come on. No, he's not the original antihero. The original antihero is half of the cast of the Dirty Dozen. 
<laughs> okay. I'm I'm gonna go up to the seven though. I, I I went first and and I was being safe with the six, but both of you guys talked me up to the seven there. So So instead of my clean math, that would have been a six point five average, we're now at a six point eight three average. Beautiful. Uh, well, make you work for your pay. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Never without commentary. All right. So, Dad, I've spared you up until this point having to go first on any of these. So I'm going to give you your category first. You can wade into the very difficult subject of classicness. There's a loaded hot potato here. Oh, boy. <sighs> There's so much that's good and there's so much that's bad. And I keep watching it. And oh my God. The terms, the G word over and over and over. I just want to cringe. I cannot, even though there's some great aspects of this film, I cannot go higher. I, I went. With originally with a five, and I went up a little bit because there's so much that's good about the redemption. But then I started thinking about, well, let's see, send it here. And I'm like, no, I can't go anything. So 5.5 is where I am. Okay. There's obvious signs of masculinity from an older era, I think to a toxic degree. <laughs> there's really, as we've mentioned before, no regretfulness or apology for any of his behavior. What I'll even say is not just that there is an absurd amount of racial slurs in this movie that you would think that you were attending a Washington football game circa like 1970, but some of the terms are so dated that I don't know where they came from or what they mean. Like Z head. I have no idea what that means. And I'm afraid to look it up. Even that has, like, aged out very poorly. So if you just take a point off for the amount of racial slurs, you take about a point off for the really dated ones that I don't quite understand that I think are only relevant to those who maybe served in Korea, and that's kind of a forgotten war. You want to... Unless you watch MASH. Well, and that's something I never did, but regardless. Or you want to take like an extra half point to a point or whatever for the really narrow view of masculinity, especially as we've appreciated about your car being fixed. Well, yeah, as we've broadened the spectrum of what masculinity can be over the last 15 years. So I got down to a four. I think this is a movie that give it another five or 10 years. People are going to be wanting to skip over this movie entirely because of some of the, the content in it. Ah, uh, boy. Um, this is this is the section of this pod I've been kind of anticipating this whole week here, just because this is this is such a this is such a lightning rod here. So, I mean, there's blunt force trauma to the script. I mean, there really is. Like, especially watching this in 2023. I mean, and it just starts right away. And it's funny. Like, there was even a moment in the very first scene that, like, I watched this time around. And was, oh boy, this is now offending a whole other crew. Cause I think like when he's when he like scoffs at his granddaughter having the belly button ring in church, like there's definitely a group of people now who would be like, who is he to like body shame her with what she wants to wear, even though I'm, you know, annoying. I'm, I'm I come I come from a, a Catholic family and I'm, I'm a Catholic. And they would, if any of my 
cousins or sisters or sister wore a belly button in church, it would they'd never hear the end of it. They wouldn't. They it would be a major problem. But I think that that's like in today's society, you can't necessarily scoff at what people wear. Um, and that's this is not even talking about as you said all of the the copious and creative racial slurs that are in this thing. I will go back to what Dana said at the very beginning of this, though, in that you knew people when you were growing up that spoke this way and that this is a there's a reality to this. This is not like this wasn't just like a guy sitting down saying, all right, let me just like write a bunch of offensive things to for shock value or to be funny or like, you know, crash style. There's like, and the writer said, he goes, you know, this is how my grandfather spoke. And there was, this person lived and this person. So there is a classicness to that, is it? And, and I don't think that this type of language will ever be portrayed again in the near future. And this kind of just got in, in that 2008 Twitter cancel culture time period. If this, if this, this wouldn't have been greenlit maybe two years later. And they even said that when he came with the script and they put it on his desk. They're like, just let you know, this isn't exactly PC. And he goes, great, I'll read it tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> and then was like, we're doing it. You can put all those things together and, and kind of process how this thing fits in the history of things. But in the time we're living in right now, it is there's no way to not watch this without full shock. So uh, to, to take all those thoughts that I just spoke and throw them in a blender, I think I'll, I'll tip my cap to... Uh, to King Classic around here, and I'll go with Dana Score. That seems the best <laughs> best way to go. Maybe I should have just saved the pod time and just and said that to start. Uh, five point five. Well, it makes some clean math with a five average. Rewatchability. I'll make this pretty short and sweet. I actually enjoyed the movie, even though it's probably not something that I'm going to return to very often. If it's something that I got a volunteer to put on. I, I could see myself at about a two-ish and probably about a four leaving it on. So I'm at a six. I'll go next. So on the uh, if it's going to be on, there ain't no chance I'm turning it off. So if this is a, this is if, if I'm walking by and this is on at any point, I'm keeping it on. This is a five as far as that goes. Like it, it it's not getting turned off. You know, I don't know that I'm putting this on yearly. You know, I don't know that I'm necessarily fully going out of my way, but it is a movie that I find fully rewatchable and I'd be glad to put on. So it's to me, a five is like, I got to see it once a year or more. I'll go, uh, I'll go a four. So it's going to be a nine rewatchability wise for me. This is the first time since you've had the official designation of your test on the show. That's right. The KB, uh, the KB equation. So that's right. I get to, I get to just swing right into it. I don't have to explain it. I love it. Very honored, by the way. Very honored. Hey, we're accepting of all good thoughts wherever they come from. <laughs> Marketplace and ideas, as Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said. I have not rewatched Cat on the Hot Tin Roof since the pod, so I don't know if uh, that affects the, uh, the the callback. Neither of either of us, and I can't <laughs> imagine going back to rewatch it much very soon. But another potentially racially charged movie <laughs> and sexually. Mm. Oh yeah. Deb? I'm at a 4.5. This is a film that I'll leave on, but I'm not going to go out of my way. This is a film that, quite frankly, if I watch it every 10 or 15 years, it's just fine. I can think of so many other Clint films that I'd go, yeah. I, I mean, I like to watch The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly about every 12 to 18 months. 
I like to watch Unforgiven every other year. I mean, there's just so many of them that I like to. This is just not going to be one of them because there's just something about it because of the nature of the hostility and the bigotry that just kind of makes me, eh, okay, I've lived this. I don't need to relive it multiple times. So, 4.5. All right. We're all over the map on that one. So you got some math to do here. You had to take the calculator out. Oh, I actually know. I mean, I did that one in my head. It's a 6.5 average between the three of us. There we go. Okay. So then for audience score, we had an 88% for Google users and 90% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.9. So to recap the categories, we had a 5.33 for Legacy, a 7.5 for Impact and Significance, a 6.83 for Novelty, a 5 for Classicness, a 6.5 for Rewatchability, and an 8.9 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of... 40.06, and currently placing it on our list between last week's entry, The Lady Vanishes, and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Little drummer boy, get off my lawn. Wow, so back-to-back weeks going back-to-back spots. Has that ever happened before? Do you have any recollection of that? Actually, quite a few times. Last oh, week, wow. we broke up the Indiana Jones second and third because we'd done that trilogy as well. Because Indiana Jones 3 and Indiana Jones 2 were back-to-back. Oh, wow. Was Lady Vanishes, and what was the other one? Temple of Doom, but also just above that one is Last Crusade. Right around the 40 slot, right? In, right just, made the, uh, just made the bell curve there. Yep. If you uh, did not like our scores, if you would like to send us any uh, disagreements, hate mail, or otherwise... You can email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can find our Facebook page. Find our Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok handle at Podcast, Or just, I don't know. Otherwise, uh, maybe through the website, ronnieduncanstudios.com backslash Podcast. You can also find the full master list with all of the graded movies so far, or at least their final score. There is an episode entry or an episode link in the description of every episode to take you uh, right there with all of our other information for this episode specific. Let's move to remaining questions. With all of the guns, and especially in light of how we've seen actual arrests of people with a lot of guns in the last 20, 25 years, how the hell did the police take all of their crew alive with no single injury? I saw this is this is a good one. My only explanation was is that like the guys were sh- expecting a shootout and they're all because they're such kind of like they're amateurs. I don't they, they're they're young. These guys are not old old guys that they thought this was going to be the okay corral situation and then they realized that they just they gunned an old guy down and before they could get a grasp of what went on, they checked him and the cops just got there and they just I kind of look at it as like rookie shooters, maybe. But that leads me to believe that in their fear and panic, that they would shoot anybody that came after them. And they're going to try and hold up David Koresh style. Yeah, I, I, I could see it. I could see it. I just wonder, are these guys big time gangsters or are they just kind of small time? And They're pretenders, clearly. Right, right. But you've already committed one murder and you don't necessarily want to go away for another if you're not going to flee, 
I mean, because the cops were not there at the scene to like try and lock it down or try and do something else. And those guys are all holed up in the house. They kind of have the advantage. I, I just don't know how there wasn't a single cop shot. Not one of these other kids that's out being laid out on a body stretcher. Nothing. They're they're just all sitting handcuffed neatly in the lawn. It it makes no sense to me. Yeah, it's true. They, now the cops were there hours before, staked out. So it was definitely on their desk. So I'm sure one of the neighbors call as soon as there's a confrontation. So maybe they had someone in the nearby area that could got there quick. And if he gets there quick enough that they're all still a little shook by what happened, maybe. But no, I, I think that's a very fair nitpick. I have no comment because I have no idea. I've, I've been involved in so many different aspects of police apprehensions in my profession and before that because I worked as a security guard and was involved with police. <laughs> there are a lot of bizarre events that take place that you go, why? And then you just like, you, you don't have an explanation. So I'm just going to leave it at that. I don't have one. Remaining questions for either of you? I have one. Yeah, go. He says in his confession that the reason he doesn't have a good relationship with his sons is because he doesn't know how. Would the priest have went to the boys and said, you know, your dad basically said in confession that he loved you. He just didn't know how to relate to you to make them feel better about the relationship with their dad. Or is he just going to keep silent? Because it's said in the confessional, and I don't think that's a vow broken lightly, I would say that he'll probably keep that to himself. Mm. Mm, Tricky. I'm not sure. Tricky. Yeah. I think he does sit down with the boys if they reach out to him at some point down the line. I think he does. And and he, I don't think he quotes Walt, but I think he he gives his perspective of the situation if 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 the boys reach out um i don't know that they do it, it, the 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 little characterization we get of them is not a lot to go off of of their persona but i think that tom's right i i think that like that the the sacrament of confession you can't really be going around um dropping lines off of that but yeah, I, I, I do think, Dana, to answer your question, I think he probably does find a way to convey that to them. And he's a very forward character. You know, he showed up to Walt's house after being insulted how many times and he kept showing up. So, yeah, no, I think he does find a way to convey that to them, whether they're receptive of it or not is, is unclear. If it were non-Catholic, like if it were a Lutheran situation, I think it might be different because that's not specifically there, but because of how closely held a lot of the sacraments are in Catholicism. I just have a hard time, especially for a, a father to try and break that. I just, I don't know if I would see that happening. I think there's a way around it, but I, I just don't think he specifically revealed he told them that. I have one. Why is Walt so able to readily lock people inside his basement? That's kind of creepy, right? <laughs> he could just cage 15 year olds in his basement that seems very odd and on a whim like he didn't do a lot of construction before he just oh now you, you he and he's like you, you will never get out of there it's like oh okay yeah it's an unusual setup for that kind of doorway that i'm not familiar with some of the construction of those houses 
like his house seems almost pre-war era in its construction. So to have what essentially looks like an outward gate door that would normally you'd find on like the front of the house to lock your basement like that, it just seems a little odd. Questionable. Or at least I haven't seen it before, but I don't think it's out of the ordinary necessarily, but I'm not familiar with that construction. So I, I guess I agree with you. A little sketch, a little sus. It, it's definitely not a great look, but given that he was going to allow himself to be killed, I really think he kind of gets a pass. Mm. I had another one here, too. Did you, did, Tom, did you have another one? Yeah, I had one more. One of the things that no one discusses, yes, obviously the car is important, but it wasn't the only part of his belongings that I was interested in. Who got Walt's tools? I love this. I, I love this. This is great. Like they, they specifically mention the house, they mention the car, but they don't say anything about the tools. They even make a mention of where the dog goes. Uh This is like a casualty of, of script, of script narrative, you know, like, because they have to end with the big thing that like, we're more emotionally attached to the tools than the house. So like, they're not going to like, the will isn't going to mention the tools at the end, even though we're more emotionally attached to them than the house. So I'm going to guess that because I don't think that like Tao could just go over there and take the tools or I'm going to guess they go with the church, right? Like the furniture in the house all go to the church. It's auctioned off or what you're shaking your head, Dana. What, what do you think? Auctioned. Auction. Yep. That would be my guess. I mean, it's a vast tool collection and he was already borrowing it out to Tao. I would have a hard time thinking that if he's going to give him the car, why wouldn't he also give him the tools that he's collected? Could have been read off earlier or there could have been a sub note maybe. It just doesn't it doesn't service the narrative to then bring up Tao before that. I, I have a genuine question with this. And I mean, you, you guys in the law world, if, if you give your house to the church, what does that mean exactly? Do they auction, do they auction the, it off and then get the donation? Do they have someone, a priest live there? What does that what does it mean when you give a house to the church? The house goes to the church. The church then ultimately decides how the house will be handled. It can be sold it can be torn down it can be whatever you want it to be we had a a house that was donated to our church years ago i was involved with handling a estate years ago the the entire farm was given to the church and so you transfer it then the church had to decide whether they were going to sell it or they were going to maintain it and just rent the farmland out to the neighboring farmers and take the revenue it's ultimately their decision. As far as the tools go, it's not something that most men think about, you know, the value of their tools. I, I think to me, that's what Tao did when he got the car because he gets the car. So he has to go into the garage. I think he bundles up the tools he wants, throws them in the back seat of the Torino and goes from there. That's in my mind. That's how it ends. Wouldn't surprise me. Anyway, any other remaining questions? I, I have one last one. Is Tao out of the woods here? You may have answered this already, Tom, was saying that these guys are pretenders, but if they're in any kind of connected Hmong gang, you know, you got to imagine there's gangs in prison with connects outside. I mean, would they take lightly an entire chapter of their gang going to jail over, you know, a 15-year-old kid or whatnot? Does he have to look over his shoulder here for future uh, gang altercations? 
I think it is something to be potentially said because earlier on in the movie, it is mentioned the girls assimilate better than the boys and the girls go to school. The boys end up in jail. So I think that it is part of a larger cultural thing, but we did already see kind of like rival gangs. And my guess is, is that it's not like a Crips or Bloods situation where there's like a overarching infrastructure that doesn't appear to be what's going on, at least within the rules of the film as they're presented to us. I would assume that this is a very isolated, limited group that's trying to pose as being like true gangsters that actually isn't. And so if that's the case, the only thing I would necessarily fear because all of those guys, especially because they're only going to get public defenders, maybe cut a deal where it's not quite 25 to life, but most likely all of them are getting, or at least a couple of them are getting pretty severe 25 year plus sentences. And the possession of some of those weapons alone is going to be multiple years. Right. I think that's, if you cut a deal, you're probably giving up one of the guys to basically be done for life. And the rest of them still are probably going to get 10 to 15 minimum. Yeah. Yes. My legal analysis is probably lacking that. I see you scrunching your face. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 I got it. I mean, they'll have, they'll have what they really want ultimately being within the prison population. Although they may have to run a bit when they're in the shower. <laughs> All I'm saying is the only thing I would necessarily fear is if let's say one or two of them happened to have the flu that day, didn't show up for work on time, something of that situation where they weren't part of the gang that got arrested and then takes out retaliation. But that would be the only thing I think within the course of the movie, you're not supposed to feel like there's any threat remaining. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think he's pretty set up with his job. He did well connected him to the right people in that little construction group there. And I think he'll be, he'll be good from there. He has enough of a personality to make it work from there. All right. Well, I think we're venturing on BPC territory not quite Three hours total of recording for us. Uh, I'm going to edit me, this man. down. I'm sorry. No, I it's spread okay. like a disease. That's how it works, right? <laughs> I'm just I fine going, going on. I, a lot of the discussions in this have nothing to do with the actual movie. And by the time it gets cut <laughs> down, it's going to be severely less. So if you're listening to this now and it's only like an hour and 45 minutes as opposed to the nearly three hours that we've currently been recording, you'll understand why. But even so, it's always a pleasure having you on, Kieran. And, uh, You've already shared a few things about PPC with us, but uh, what else do you guys got going on? Anything to look forward to? Yeah, Best Picture cast. Check us out on all the platforms, uh, all the social medias. We have a good time. We have our horror tournament coming up, so you can vote your way in on that. Uh, last year's winner was The Shining, which is a previous episode of uh, of the GMOTE pod. Uh, who knows what we'll win this year? We don't uh, have any idea, but uh, that'll be good. And, and our fifth season's just starting we have All About Eve coming up. French Connection will be an episode coming up, too. The third episode will be something bad. I'll let you know. It is either going to be the Greg Zigfield or, or Cimarron. We'll see. We'll, ooh, we're gonna, ooh, we might even on, have a, a Hold poll. on. Yeah. You did not just put the Great Zigfield <laughs> as being bad. <laughs> well, I mean, you, why? You like the Great Zigfield? I like the Great Zigfield. I love that. I love that take. I just I just see a, I just see a three and a half hour 1938 movie that. I did not enjoy as I got to do a podcast on this. So cool. If you got, did, is there a Gmote Greg Ziegfeld? Uh, probably at some point down the line. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Maybe I need to, but see, this is the beauty of this is, is that I 
I always go in with an open mind, but now that I know that someone out there is uh, is a a Zigfield defender, maybe I gotta uh, I gotta really check my privilege coming into this guy. So I'm just a William Powell fan. Let's say that. Like that's what really turned me on to him. I still haven't seen The Thin Man, but it is on my like medium list of stuff to do. And I really liked him in. Um, we did an episode in season one on Mister Rogers, or not Mister Rogers, uh, Mister Roberts, and I, I thought he was fantastic in that one as well. So I don't know. I for whatever reason I appreciated the film, even though it's in a genre that I really kind of hate as far as the biopic but i I thought it was at least for the time it was done well a little bit better than the year after it with the life of emile zola even though i still liked that film it isn't quite as good what i have a problem with is cimarron and cavalcade yes we did we had our cavalcade episode (laughs) that was that was a fun one that was uh that was and and it's 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 really fun inviting your your close friends in to do a podcast on this movie they've never heard of and have and have it be Cavalcade. So it's just like, you know, hey, what do you want me to, Yeah, I'll be on the podcast. Yeah, you know, here's a movie called Cavalcade. Check it out. And then they come back and they're like, I don't know that I want to be this guy's friend anymore. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, how are they still friends of yours? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. just from the greatest show on Earth episode alone, you probably oh, lost Lord. some friends. Yeah. Same guy, same guy too. He was on both. Yeah, but yeah, we have our guy Oz. We give all the uh, we give all the all the the dirty jobs to. He's our our BPC dirty jobs guy. But yeah, so and we have we do a Christmas episode every year. Uh, we do a every Thanksgiving we do a Stephen King episode. We're completing the uh, different seasons book. We did Shawshank and Miser. I'm sorry, Shawshank and Stand by Me, which are two of the famous ones out of that book. We're also going to do the third one this year which is apt pupil, which is not so popular. I don't know if anyone's heard of that. It's a, a very odd uh, 1998 Brian Singer film, a, a canceled character. But uh, that's um, that includes uh, Brad Renfro and um, Gandalf from uh, from Lord of the Rings. Skipping, skipping my mind here. Remind me, I have a story for you for, about Shawshank when we get off the air. Oh, cool. Yeah, my, my favorite, my number one. We're revisiting that. Bring me on. I can spike that up above Dark Knight in a second here. Just toss some 11s out there. (laughs) (laughs) I think that you have the wrong uh, movie for that. That would be uh, Spinal Tap. Yes. But uh, any last thoughts for The Week Dead? Uh, No. Yeah, not really me either. I'll just say quickly, uh, we can talk about it more next week when we have a little bit more space. And we haven't been going on quite this long. But uh, we both saw Past Lives over the weekend. Beautiful film. I'll just give the quick review on that one. Beautiful film. Well worth the time. Otherwise, that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. When your head says one thing and your whole life says another, your head always loses. Next week, for our 183rd episode, we discuss the gangster thriller Key Largo from 1948, celebrating its 75th anniversary. Directed and written by John Huston, co-written with Richard Brooks, music by Max Steiner, starring... Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Lionel Barrymore, and Edward G. Robinson. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. 
The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Rodney Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.